from WAMU 88.5, this is Metropocalypse. I'm Martin DeCaro. But this week, call me Dickens. Ah, humbug. The place, Washington. The time, 2016. The season, that of festivity and charity and goodwill to all men. Except if you ride Washington's mass transit system. This review revealed a disturbing level of indifference, lack of accountability, and flagrant misconduct. I don't believe that terminating people is going to be the answer. Coming up, the ghosts of Metro past, present, and delays yet to come as we drift off on episode 27 of Metro the DC Metro uh, historically has been a great strength of this region. People think this is a 2016 problem. This is a 2006 problem. Ah! Humbug. Seasons greetings from the Metropocalypse, everyone. Before we're visited by the ghosts of Metro past, present, and track fires yet to come, let's look at two big stories wrapping up 2016 that'll also loom over the year ahead. Late-night service cuts are becoming permanent. But first, Metro is disciplining 28 employees on charges they falsify track inspection records. Several have been fired. Others could be fired soon. Some are being suspended or demoted. Here is General Manager Paul Wiedefeld as a five-month Metro investigation concludes. I want the board to know, I want the customers to know, and I want our employees to know that this review revealed a disturbing level of indifference lack of accountability and flagrant misconduct in, in, the, in a portion of the Metro Track Department, which is completely intolerable. Further, it is reprehensible that any supervisor or mid-level manager would tolerate or encourage this behavior or seek to retaliate against those who objected. Now remember, the derailment of a Silver Line train took place in Virginia in late July. Sixty people were aboard, no serious injuries, but the tracks were rotting, and the inspection reports filed for years prior did not accurately reflect that. Jackie Jeter is the head of the Amalgamated Transit Union. She represents the track walkers, and she says don't blame them before you know all the facts of what they were dealing with. Poor training, in her words, and a climate of retaliation if they reported problems. If you have a systemic problem, then it goes way beyond the workers, way beyond the workers. And I don't believe that terminating people is going to be the answer. It's not the answer. It's not what's going to get WMATA to a safer culture. Yes, accountability does have a responsibility here. But accountability starts at the top. 28 employees. That's half of Metro's track inspection department. Half. The problem was not isolated to the records at East Falls Church. Firing people can't create a safety culture alone, but Paul Wiedefeld says it does start with personal accountability. All right, big story number two, it is official. Starting July 1st, Metro Rail will close early for maintenance through June 2019. Here are the new hours. Again, this starts July 1st. 5 a.m. to 11.30 p.m. Monday through Thursday. 5 a.m. to 1 a.m. on Fridays. 7 a.m. to 1 a.m. on Saturdays. 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. on Sundays. So you're losing eight hours a week of operating time. Metro is gaining those hours to conduct maintenance and inspections while you're asleep. Dreaming, we hope, of better days ahead for our subway system. But when? Next year? Next decade? Remember what happened when Ebenezer Scrooge fell asleep one night? Well, when we continue on Metropocalypse, it'll be time to shut our eyes and await the ghosts of Metro past, present, and single trackings yet to come.
Golden Marley was as dead as a 1000 series railcar, but his old business partner is still alive, barely, despite treating others so poorly even at Christmas time. He leaves people stranded on frozen outdoor platforms or stuck in dark tunnels. He takes your fares and gives little in return. Oh, and he may start charging even more. Metro. 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 Call me Jacob Marley. Or maybe just Jacob Metropocalypse. But if Metro is Scrooge, then there is hope as a new year dawns. After all, old Ebenezer was not beyond salvation. Well, in many ways, Metro was a miser in 2016. The system pulled away from us. There was safe track and all those disruptions during rush hour. Plus, track work started earlier during weeknights. And there was no special late night service, not even for Nationals playoff games. So will 2017 be the year Metro comes back to us even a little bit, delivering more and better service? Let's find out. Zachary Schrag is our ghost of Metro past. He's a history professor at George Mason University. And Dan Tangerlini is our ghost of Metro future. He's a former interim general manager at Metro, but now the president of a company called Seamless Docks. Dan, we're going to start with you. What do you see in the future 2017 and beyond? I think 2017 is going to be, frankly, another version of 2016. In 2016, you can't get much further pulled away from than shutting the whole system down for a whole day for a safety stand down. And we saw then the uh, safe track effort, which you know has seen pullaways from, from people's stations, the single tracking uh, shutdowns. So I think what you're going to see now is this is going to move into the next phase, which is trying to operationalize a consistent maintenance phase. And I think what you're seeing also is a realization that the finances of the organization is making it hard to maintain the same levels of service. So there's a big question now that's going to be called for the region, which is how much transit does this region want to pay for? Zachary Schrag, George Mason University historian and author of The Great Society Subway. We're really entering a new era in Metro's history, aren't we? I sure think so. I mean, the Again, the financial crisis of Metro goes back pretty much half a century at this point, but primarily the question was, can we afford to build Metro? And uh, that has shifted over in the last few years to, can we afford to maintain and operate Metro? Dan Tangerlini, you were interim general manager of Metro for a short period of time, kind of at the end of the, the good run, right, before some of these problems started to become visible. I think a lot of listeners to the podcast who are hearing this conversation now. They're looking ahead to 2017 saying, what I want is just run the darn trains on time. I don't think we can guarantee that 2017 is going to be a great year for reliability and service. I I actually have to say that, uh, you know, that's very reminiscent of problems we were having in 2006. Really? Oh, sure. And uh, I think that there was a big discussion already about this question of the quality of the system we had right as we were embarking on the next investment in the Silver Line. People think this is a 2016 problem. This is a 2006 problem, and it probably had its roots earlier in the 2000s. As the system was built out and filled out, as people started really riding it, and it would be interesting, and I, I just don't have the data in front of me, I'd be curious to, as, as Zachary points out, the ridership has begun to 
come back off those highs. But where is it now? I think it's probably still north of 2006 levels. Average weekday ridership is about 630,000 people. That's down about 100,000 since the 2009 peak. Wow. Average weekday ridership. Zachary Schrag, I'd love to get your take on this. Metro built at a time when the automobile was taking over our cities. And as we like to say, there's that cliche, everything comes full circle. Article in Slate today Cities across the country are cutting public transportation because they think ride-hailing services will fill the gap. They can just take an Uber, quote-unquote, is the headline of this article. How do you feel about this idea that as Metro scales itself back in 2017 and Uber continues to grow, that, uh, yeah, you know, we don't need late-night trains because those workers can hop into Ubers and get home? Well, as the article pointed out, all of Uber may be unsustainable in that it is burning through billions of dollars of capital investment and losing much more money than Metro ever could. Well, not ever, but um, than Metro has. <laughs> you know, in that sense, I think the essay has a point where I think the essay is a little bit mistaken is the assumption that transit is for the carless. The argument in the essay is that once people are told to drive to the stations, they'll drive all the way and won't take transit. But Metro, again, back to 1965 especially, but even before then, the plans were always to serve the big corridors with the understanding that most families would have cars, that lots of people would not be within a comfortable walk of Metro stations. And so whether you're doing a park and ride, as at Vienna, whether you're doing a kiss and ride, and many of our stations are designed to allow that, Um, whether you're taking a bus, whether you're taking a bike, or whether you're taking a cab or now an Uber, um, the system really is there to serve the main trunks, and it's good to have a lot of options to get to the station. Dan Tangerlini, Uber instead of Metro. I I think it's a false dichotomy. I I actually think that long-term, as Zachary points out, these things are actually complementary. The simple fact is we're not building any more capacity. You're, you're maybe squeezing another lane out of 66, maybe. Um, but that's not extra capacity for getting out on those routes. So you, you can fill it up with Ubers uh, just in the same way you can fill it up with cars and then people aren't moving again. And so there, there's got to be a pressure relief valve. And that's what Metro has always been. We're speaking with Dan Tangerlini, former interim general manager of Metro back uh, about 10 years ago. And he's also been head of the GSA in the District Department of Transportation. And we're also speaking with George Mason University historian Zachary Schrag. Both have been on the podcast multiple times. On the issue of Uber and substituting or complementing public transit, and we broke a story uh, recently here on WAMU about a partnership Metro is entering into with Uber for the last mile, first mile connections to the rail system. Uh, The thing is, though, I mean, Metro is going to be potentially less useful next year with a reduced late night rail service and a you know, the budget proposal that won't be decided for a few more months now uh, that could cut back rail frequencies, eliminate bus routes. I don't know how Uber feels about that. I know I know what they're interested in. But, I mean, we need to have both functioning at full capacity, right? Well, I, again, I think we really do have to have a discussion about what is it that we want to invest in in the way of people's access and mobility around the region and within the city. And Metro was built because there was this regional... Uh, agreement to to build it, right? There was mm-hmm. this this real sense that we're going to come together as a region and connect each other, aggressively connect each other. And, and as Zachary pointed out, the Silver Line was an example where 
Virginia said, look, we still want the kind of the metro mobility, but we're going to go build it ourselves. And and Maryland's doing the same with the Purple Line, and, and D.C. did the same with the streetcar. And what we've done is we've atomized our transit system. You know, every county, every city, every town practically has their own bus service now. We've atomized our, our spend. We've atomized our decision-making. We really haven't thought about it as a, as a network and a system. We've really stopped working as a region in that sense. Professor Schrag, if you have anything to add, go ahead. Well, the, uh, you know, one bit of good news in there is at least the smart trip is compatible across systems. But um, there is definitely an irony that, um, you know, the region used to be served by multiple independent for-profit bus companies uh, that did not always coordinate their schedules. And one of the hopes of bringing them into a regional metro bus system was uh, to be able to do more planning. And so uh, there are definitely uh, potential problems if it gets chopped up into lots of different systems, um, given that, you know, a lot of people do cross jurisdictional boundaries. Um, You know, if if you've got multiple wage earners in a household, they're going in different directions. So it is important to have some kind of regional vision. In pure geometric terms, 800 people can fit on a train that has eight cars during rush hour. 800 people in individual Ubers trying to cram through downtown D.C. streets just doesn't work. But I think individuals don't always think of that. And as Professor Schrag pointed out, Uber is heavily subsidizing its fares with its Silicon Valley investment money so that an Uber pool trip where you may get a person to ride with, maybe you won't, is three bucks. Individual looks at that, Dan, and says, well, Rush hour fare on Metro Rails, two twenty-five, three dollars for an Uber pool, and I'll get there faster. And I know a lot of people who do think that way. What do you think of that mentality? I think it's a completely rational mentality. Um, I, that's a twenty seventeen reality. Right the question there. is, how sustainable is that reality? And if we walk away from the tremendous public investment we've made in building these systems, what's going to happen is there will be no competition anymore, and you're going to see uh, at least surge pricing far more frequently. <laughs> The other point you made about, you know, 800 people on a rail car at rush hour, uh, to some extent, that is really the value of the investment is creating that ability, that additional capacity in rush hour. There isn't room for 800 more ride sharing cars out on the street. That's why people are, are, are making the shift off of the, you know, the, the individual mode to the, uh, to the mass transit mode. And I will say people were having the same discussion about taxis in 1970s because even then you could take the cost per passenger and say, well, it costs less to ride a cab, but that didn't count the cost of the highway that would have to be built to carry all those cabs. So I think people often forget the costs of roads. And unfortunately, in the 1970s, these included some pretty important people like President Carter. Eventually, I think he understood that roads cost billions of dollars, too. So there are various feedback mechanisms, the surge pricing, the fact that you could get an Uber and just be stuck and not go anywhere and realize that you could have gotten there faster by Metro. And, you know, possibly even some public policy options that would try to get Uber to pay for the costs of the roads that it's using. If a deal with Uber proves unsustainable someday in the future, there's an unresolved question from the past that continues to shroud debates about Metro. Coming up, we'll explore why the urban-suburban divide remains critical to understanding today's dysfunction on the rails.
Recently on Metro's Board of Directors, it's been D.C. versus, well, everyone else. The district's representatives lobbied hard to try to preserve late-night rail service. They also want to keep fares down. But members from more suburban jurisdictions in Maryland and Virginia have argued the system needs to scale back, at least for the foreseeable future. They even have to raise fares or eliminate some bus lines. Dan Tangerlini, why is this fault line so significant? Look, the whole discussion about what Metro is, and and I'd love to get Zachary's view on this, is it a commuter rail? Is it a is it a, a temporary rush hour focused commuter rail for getting people who live in the suburbs that have jobs in the city and back out again? Or is it a, a subway that's connecting neighborhood and neighborhood within an urban uh, within an urban center? And I think if you really if you take that lens and you look at the debates, you look at the discussion, you look at the way they invest, you look at the way they talk about hours, you realize that this is an unresolved issue. And frankly, to some extent, you've got two votes on the commuter rail side to one vote on the subway side. Are you talking about the jurisdictions? Yes. Well, as an Arlington resident, I I think that that's not quite as stark. But and the other thing is, I I think I think think Arlington and Alexandria have always been fighting on that Virginia side to try to emphasize the the more urban nature of the system and less the commuter nature of the system. Exactly. You know, I, I would say that it's been designed as a hybrid since 1962. The you know very first plans were more commuter oriented, commuter rail oriented, and and what we got was a hybrid. But I would say that the debates we're having are kind of how much of each do you have? So if you you know if you're mixing red and blue to make purple, you can have more red or more blue. And and I think the you know proposal to cut back hours is certainly pushing it towards more of a commuter system. And, you know, the a proposal to raise fare might be that as well, because if someone is saying, well, I've got, you know, two trips to make per day and it's cheaper than parking, that's an easier cost to swallow. You know, and, and mm-hmm. many people have commuter benefits compared to say, wow, I've got to pay this base fare several times per day as I'm going about my daily business. And if you look ahead to the 2018 fiscal year anyway, July 1st, 2017 budget plan, uh, if it isn't amended, and it could be, off-peak train frequencies would be 15 minutes on all the lines. To your point, Dan, is this a urban subway system with high frequencies or the commuter rail? If you're taking the train in from Shady Grove in the morning and going back out at night, what do you care that midday train frequencies would be 15 minutes? You're caring about the rush hour. Me as a D.C. resident, if I look at the clock and it's noon, that's midday. But to me, that should be a busy time of day. I'm not going to wait 15 minutes for a train. Right. At 9 o'clock last night at Farragut North, I was trying to ride back to Union Station. It was a 21-minute wait. Only 21? Okay. Yes, you only could 20 fit minutes. in one of these but podcasts. It, it felt like you know that would have been something I would have liked to know that I was going to take the 921. Yeah. Right. And I would have gone down to the, the platform at 921. I just assumed I was actually getting on a subway and there was going to be some headway. So, Dan, change of federal administrations, President Trump come January. Any inkling of how high up on the priority list of the new Department of Transportation Metro will be? They are inheriting a situation from the current administration that's taken a keen interest in Metro. So there's some uh, you know, interesting tea leaves discussion about the, uh, the president-elect being uh, uh, an urbanist, a person who lives in New York, and actually someone who's commented on uh, on you know, in terms of improving infrastructure, commenting on improving subways, 
The real question, though, then is looking at the the real fiscal uh, conservatism of the incoming administration, too. And that's generally a place where they've looked to uh, to find savings. I actually think that this region turning to the federal government and saying bail us out is a very, very hard argument to make. And the simple fact is that this is a region that's doing quite well financially compared to many others in the country. And frankly, the federal government has to look at what kind of liability they would be buying, not just in this region, but across the entire country. If you can go into some kind of control board-like bankruptcy for your transit system by not maintaining it and the federal government will bail it out, who's going to maintain their transit systems? Let's wrap up. We have Zachary Schrag, George Mason University historian, Dan Tangerlini, former Metro general manager for a brief period a decade ago, more recently head of the GSA, large uh, federal bureaucracy. Both have been on the podcast throughout the year, so we thank them for that. If the ghost of Christmas future, if we can borrow a character from Dickens, ghost of Christmas future were sitting here with us and we could see Metro 2017, what are we looking at? I think the ghost of Christmas future would say, don't don't look at 2017. That's that's pretty much the ghost of Christmas present. Uh, I actually think that this is a, a a really important, meaningful discussion that's just gotten underway, which is what role do we want transit to play, continue to play in this region? How are we going to integrate it with new technology such as ride sharing? And how are we actually going to pay for it going forward? Historians uh, love predicting the future, right, Mr. Schreier? I'm not merely a historian. I'm a Jewish historian. So the ghost of Christmas future has nothing to say to me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you'll be celebrating Hanukkah at around the same time I'm ripping open uh, my Christmas gifts. But uh, let's give it a shot. What would you like to see in 2017 as a longtime chronicler of this system that has gone into a period of freefall? I certainly would not expect to see an immediate turnaround, um, as you and the podcast has done a very good job exploring. These problems have been on the way for well over a decade. You could argue 30 years, you could argue longer. So I hope that people understand that it's going to take a while to resolve. And I uh, hope that there'd be some transparency and accountability. That's That's certainly been a frequent discussion of at least letting people know what the problems are. And then, you know, in terms of the podcast, I know that like Serial, you're going to go on to a completely different project. And I expect, you know, great podcasts about the Panama Canal fiasco and uh, the Flint water crisis. Well, naturally. Five overruns. And that'll give Metro some breathing space when it's not getting the 20 minutes of weekly criticism. And Dan will be hosting the podcast. We'd like to make that announcement right here. So. Well, hopefully at this time next year, Metro is like Tiny Tim on new legs. God bless us, everyone. And there you have it, the final episode of the Metropocalypse podcast for 2016. Metro has yet to announce dates for the final four safe track surges, so we're going to use this pause in the track work to reset and prepare for the year ahead. And while we're regrouping, we promise we'll continue to post and provide updates on the Metropocalypse Facebook group. We also want some specific input from you. What parts of the Metropocalypse story still need to be told? Were there any topics from this past year that you really liked or disliked? And how can we improve what we're doing here at the podcast? 
Also, do you know of any riders or residents with a unique Metro experience, good or bad? Please share your thoughts via email at metro at wamu.org or on the Facebook group. And keep an eye out for the next episodes ahead. Metropocalypse is produced and edited by Brendan Sweeney. Alicia Montgomery is our editorial director. Andy McDaniel is our director of content. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. Until next time, I'm Martin DeCaro.